Say It Loud Network presents Corner Table Talk. Well, good afternoon. Welcome to Corner Table Talk. And today I am really, really honored to have with me Nelson George. Nelson is a journalist, a prolific author. He's written over 20 books and counting. Columnist, music and culture, critic, filmmaker, I've counted 14. I'm probably wrong there, but that's not including a few documentaries where he's the interviewer, the interviewee, the producer. Nelson attended St. John's, interned initially at the Amsterdam News up in Harlem and music editor for Record World magazine, music editor for Billboard, wrote a, a great column called Native Son for the Village Voice. And also something I found out recently, Nelson, just looking into you, and I thought I, I knew almost all there was to know about you, but I didn't realize that you put up some of the dough for Spike and she's got to have it. Yeah, yeah, man. That was one of the best investments in my life. Aside from starting Spike's career, um, I've made, you know, I made, I, I think I put in 3500 at the time and I, I've made like 20 times that back or something like that over the years. That's better than Tesla, man. That's great. When, I, when, the, when that uh, Netflix show came on, on on Netflix, the series, I got another check. So I was like, yo. So what did, what did Spike show you to, to get your interest? Was it, did you just read the script or was there a, a short or what, what, what got so you? So I, I met Spike. I saw a student film of his called, um, Joe's Bedside Barbershop. We cut heads on PBS of all things. And I thought, wow, this is great. Somehow I threw a girl. I got in contact with them and, you know, we talked a little bit and then I ended up moving literally two blocks from him in Fort Greene in the spring of 85. So he said, come over to my house. He lived, if you remember um, that part of Brooklyn well, Myrtle Avenue, they used to call it Murder Myrtle. Mm-hmm. So I had, to, I had to get across Murder Myrtle, looking <laughs> this way and that way. You know, in mid-80s, you had to look both ways. Yeah. And Spike lived down a little alleyway, and all he had in his house was a bed, a Michael Jordan poster, you know, laser discs, remember those? Yeah. And he had a big old Steenbeck editing machine, which no kids know what those are anymore because they could do everything on a Mac. But then you needed a big a device with reels of, of film. So on this device, he played me uh, the rough of She's Gotta Have It. And I just thought it was, he captured black people I'd never seen on film. The Buffy Mars Greer, the B-boy that he played, Mars Blackman, uh, Nola Darling, you know, the bohemian black girl, graphic designer. So all of these characters and this, the way he sort of depicted New York and young black people, that's the, like, this, this is, fr- this is fresh, as we used to say back in the day. <laughs> and, um, he needed money to finish the film. And uh, I had just actually had the first time I ever made any money was I did a quickie bio of Michael Jackson. It came out in, uh, you know, in 84 in the wake of Thriller and all that stuff. So I actually had money for the first time in my life. And I, you know, I lent him, I think in two, two different sums money. And man, that film, he took it to the San Francisco Film Festival and then he, and he went to Cannes. And he came back as the Black Woody Allen. And uh, that was that. So that was, uh, uh, you know, that neighborhood, as you may probably remember, uh, became like a really black arts area uh, for, I guess, from early 80s to maybe the, the late 90s. Everyone came through there one form or another. So many I, artists. I want to come. I want to come back to that yeah. because yeah. that was just such a rich cultural time in terms of the, the, the kind of creatives, as you mentioned, that were there. And I certainly remember she's got to have it hit in the theaters. And, you know, we had always gone to see Shaft and Superfly and those and those nostalgic movies. But there was something different about the atmosphere around she's got to have it and then do the right thing. And and just to see young black folks fill up a theater and there for the purpose of seeing a Spike Lee film, that that was a different experience. I remember going to the Lowe's at Columbus Circle. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, man. It was just right. It was just such a the line was. The line was a party. Being in line for that movie, it was. A, I always felt like that was a um, a coming of age, kind of for that generation. I don't remember this. There was an after party at the Puck Building for one of the premieres, and it's I, it's actually on my list thinking of nightlife. One of my the best parties of my life because it was we'd all seen the movie, and you know, Fab Five Freddy was there, and uh, the Knicks were there, and uh, you know, rappers and 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 models, and it was like, oh, this is. We are making a move through the door. And that movie opened the door for Reggie Hudlin, for uh, myself, for Robert Towns, and so many people. It just showed that black film was more than just Eddie Murphy, that we could tell our own stories. Oh, yeah. And make them, you know, and so that, yeah. was, a, that was a significant event. And great casting, man. I have to tell you, you know, my dad had a place on the Upper West Side where I grew up. 
called The Cellar. And oh, yeah. John Canada Terrell was a regular customer who would come and stand at the top of the stairs as if he were his character in She's Gotta yeah. Have It and oh, yeah. pose for a moment before descending. Oh, yeah. What a character John was. I yeah. mean, it didn't take a lot of acting for him to play that character. He played Mar uh, Greer, Greer Childs. Greer Childs, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think in the introduction to the film, he drives up in a sports car convertible. Yeah, she's a typical Brooklyn tech hand. <laughs> it was great, yeah. And John was really, uh, he played, he worked in a few other films during that era, but basically he was always John Canada Terrell. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> so um, before we go too much further, um, I have what I call short order questions, a, a little play on the restaurant world of, of fast order food that I'm going to just rapid fire at you. You give me your quick response and then we'll get a little we'll get back into our conversation here. But so Brooklyn restaurant, you frequent the most often now. Yeah. Or even oh, through man. the years, if you want to throw it back. I'm, I'm uh, a couple of these Walters on DeKalb, right across from um, from Fort Greene Park, has been a regular for mine for years. When I lived in Fort Greene, I liked Roberta's, the, the pizza shop in um, Bushwick, which is excellent. I heard they just opened up a spot here in L.A., actually. I heard that, too, yeah. And one other one. I, I, you got to put Junior's in. Junior's, of course. Come on, you got you to gotta get that cheesecake, man. Yeah, man. I know you like to travel, Nelson. Favorite hotel or place that you've visited? Well, favorite hotel is probably going to be the standard spa in Miami because they have this beautiful, they have a hammam in their main room. You know, that marble, it's like a marble slab with steam. So you do the wet steam, the dry steam, and you get on the hammam and you're good. You're cleaned out every pore in your body. And so also Miami has great Cuban food. So the combination of a great spa and Cuban food, you can't beat that. Man, but you sure can't. I said the favorite place, but I would say my favorite place, most beautiful place was uh, Amalfi Coast. Ooh, yeah. My, yeah. my girlfriend and I went there um, maybe three, four years ago. And just, I'd read, I read an article that said that the water was so blue that you can't tell where the sky and the ocean meet. Mm -hmm. And it really was like that. It was mm -hmm. like this beautiful wall. And the food was unbelievable. I have not been, but I have heard. And you set it up pretty well there. And I, it's got to be on my map. I remember, though, going... To the speaking of steam rooms, your, your buddy Russell Simmons took myself and a few friends to the Russian well, steam bathhouse. The, the bathhouse, bath right? House. Right after playing basketball, we hung out. That oh was, yeah, that was yeah. fun. Yeah, and that supposedly that steam room. I don't know if I don't know if it's still open, but that steam room had been built uh, before the rules in New York City. So it was apparently the hottest steam room in New York City. I believe it. Well, it I look forward to having a cocktail with you at some point in Miami. Best yeah. live show you've ever attended. Damn. Well, you know what? I'm going to go with Earth and the Fire at Madison Square Garden. Earth and the Fire at their peak late 70s, jazz, funk, Afro-Cuban, magic tricks. Uh, they could do beautiful ballads. They could do crazy up-tempo. Uh, they had tricks where the drum sets would spin around and, and Maurice would be on one side and then he'd disappear and pop up over here. I've seen a many, many, many great shows, but that is that always sticks to me as the epitome of musicianship and showmanship. Yeah, man. I listened to that double album, the Gratitude album recently oh, yeah. from first oh, yeah. track to last track, man. I, I'm What a piece of art. that Gratitude is a great, up. great record, man. And, yep. and also it is live track. And it was also good that. for getting rid of seeds when we were in college, too. We exactly. Used to, you know. exactly. <laughs> Another conversation. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Converse All-Stars. Or pro kids, Pumas. Oh, Pumas, <laughs> man. I got, I got. I have like right now. I have red Pumas, blue Pumas, black, and I have a, a copy of Clyde's that I never wear. White ones, a green stripe that says Clyde on it. So Pumas. I love it, man. I love it. All right, favorite off the bench New York Nick of all time. Hey, I, it's, it's a childhood thing. When I was a kid, when the Knicks started getting good around 68, 69, they used to have these things in New York where players would come to like the hood, you know, to, to the ghetto. And Mike Reardon, number six, came to Brownsville. And I was like, he's in the, he's in the projects. <laughs> so I always give Mike Reardon, who was, who was a six man in those good Knicks teams, a lot of respect. So I always say Mike Reardon. Yeah, I like him. Cassie Russell was my guy. Well, Cassie was the same generation. I was going to yep. say Cassie. But because uh, I had the direct connection with, with Reardon, I thought that was 
you know, I just was amazed as white guys in the hood in 1960. Yeah, unbelievable, right? And very rare. Yeah. Uh, all right, person, past or present, you would most like to have a cocktail with? Tough. Um, that's so tough. I think probably Richard Wright, the great uh, writer. Uh, I, when I, I my column in the Village Voice was called Native Son, you know, for years, and that was named after his famous novel. Um, and uh, so I, I probably sit with him and, you know, ask, you know, because he was kind of the first black superstar model, I mean, writer of the post-war period, you know, after World War II. And um, I mean, basically, you know, he had to leave America because he felt so harassed. He moved to Paris, I think, in 48 or 49 and never came back. So I would be really curious to see what he would think of how the world had evolved. Yeah, that would be incredible, man. You know, I recently watched a uh, a clip of Soul from, you know, the early 70s. And yeah. I watched a, a conversation between Nikki Giovanni and James Baldwin. Right, right. And it's just so interesting, man, knowing what we've just and continue to go through, but what 2020 kind of put in our faces again. And to hear the words of some of the, the Richard Wrights and the James Baldwins and the Malcolms and how, you know, those 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 resonate still today. Unfortunately, the fundamentals haven't changed. I mean, there's been progress, and don't everybody say there hasn't been. But um, the fundamental inequalities have not not shifted for the majority of black people. No. Um, the last time that I saw you, Nelson, I don't know if you remember, about a year, a little bit more than a year ago uh, in Los Angeles, we were at the premiere for uh, The Black, Black Godfather. Yeah. We had a nice little chat for a minute. And it was also the last time man, that I saw Andre Harrell, who we lost. Ooh. Yeah, last yeah, year. Yeah. Talk talk to me a little bit about Andre. Andre to me was just such an influencer, nightlife guy. I mean, he would be every place I ever opened, and the coolest <laughs> energy. You know, just is spewing out his Andre isms. But give give us just a, oh, a little man. bit of of what you recall about Andre in that way. So Andre Harrell was the founder of Town Records, but I met Andre when he was still a rapper, and it was Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, and we became really close. During that time, I remember being, he had an office in uh, Brooklyn. People don't remember it. Uptown actually started in Brooklyn. He had an office on 4th Avenue after he first got money to start it. And, you know, I'm sitting, Heavy D would be in there. And, you know, we have a very interesting personal, you know, professional connection. So I was hanging out. He was part of my basketball crew with uh, Russell Simmons, Gary Harris, the late Gary Harris as well. But uh, he had these parties, you know. And at that party, it was a girl named Beverly Bond. And Beverly... Yeah, but then she was just a young woman, but she was known as a great dancer. So she, everyone started going, go Beverly, go Beverly, go Beverly. And out of that party, the idea for a movie called Strictly Business came, So, um, which we I co-wrote and came out in 91. And basically the character that, that Halle Berry plays in the film was inspired by Beverly and inspired by that party. So that um, being around Andre was always a sense of um, creativity. And possibility. Also, he was a man of many sayings. You know, oh, there's the buddy wavies. Those are girls that had nice wavy hair. He always used to say, oh, come here's the mighty Nelson George coming. You know, he always had a, a ghetto a fabulous. Ghetto fabulous. He had so many names and flavors. Um, he passed away this past year of a, a heart attack. Um, and actually, there's a crew. I sit with his uh, cousin O'Neill McKnight. I'm sure you know O'Neill. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, every now and then we get together on a Sunday night and just smoke a cigar. Uh, in tribute to him, because uh, Andre was a, a he was someone you never forgot, and he was a signature part of nightlife, whether it was New York in the eighties, nineties, or LA in the nineties going forward. I mean, we would always still there was a great R and B party here at the Blind Dragon that um, Allison, you might remember Allison, she was a promoter. Uh, she used to this party at the Blind Dragon where DJ Mos would play, and you know Andre would come through, and we you know every now and then we'd have like they'd play some Uptown or they'd play some New Jack Swing, so. He still had that flavor. He still had that energy. Passed away way too soon. Yeah, man. Yep. And you know that rarely can you attribute the the title of original to to someone. But Andre, man, was yeah. an original, and I, I know not soon to be forgotten. So my condolences for the loss of of your yeah. good friend there. Yeah. So Nelson, there's a lot. <laughs> going on in the world these days, man. 2020 was was pretty revealing. I feel like the the universe just pressed a giant pause button on us and said, you know, we really need to stop things here for a moment and you all need to pay attention. And in some ways, I feel that that was very necessary. And that's not to diminish people who lost businesses and, and friends and family. But the world is really kind of spinning in a in a 
direction. You mentioned, you know, we were talking before we came on about uh, the effects of global warming and the impact that that's going to have on some of the coastlines. I'm just curious, you know, as you as you, you know, are spending time between New York and L.A. these days, what's what's your sense of things? Where do you where do you feel like we are a new administration and, and the vaccine on the way? What, give, give us just kind of the Nelson George overview of, of some of that. I don't dread opening up the New York Times anymore. Every day, I was like, there's some new stuff about to happen. And, you know, just meanness, cruelty. Cruelty was the hallmark of the Trump administration. Cruelty was the point of the Trump administration. Ignorance and a disrespect for science. I feel all of that has been, I feel very much like a weight has been lifted. We, we're not out of the woods of anything. But the fact is that I don't feel like every day there's going to be a major catastrophe which I always feared every day, and they would be major catastrophes. I feel much better um, about life in terms of the national spirit. I say something uh, that that really does bother me being between the two cities, particularly out here, is is a homeless problem. It's really terrible, and it's bad in New York. It's awful out here. And but when people say the homeless problem, what they're really talking about is income inequality. We don't have enough uh, homes for working class people. We don't have enough mental illness. I mean, you know, we don't have any kind of system where we're dealing. Most of these people need treatment. They don't need to be in jail. Working class people are being forced to live in their cars. When COVID hits, you really see how ineffective the healthcare system is. So there is a fundamental problem with capitalism and how, how money is distributed in this country. And until we address that, we're not going to get rid of homelessness. We're not going to really address the healthcare. We have to really look at how we value people. And that's been something that's really been a fundamental. We've lost empathy. When we were growing up, Brad, there were words like brotherhood. That was a word that was tossed around a lot when I was a child. The brotherhood of man. No one in the public speak, space speaks about that anymore. The, the need to bring us together as human beings, is, has, that's not part of the national dialogue, either on the right, even, the, even on the left. So we, we got to get back to we're all in this together. I don't see it how and we all have to look at fundamentally how do we value each other and what is the value? Is it all about making money or is it about a good life for everyone? And, and until we address those fundamental questions, I don't see how we really change everything. Wow, man. You know, yeah, I, I, speaking of the New York Times, I wrote I read an article uh, when the pandemic was was first unfolding and it talked about how whatever was happening in your head, in your mind and whatever you were inclined to be, if you were nervous, you were anxious, the pandemic was going to accelerate that. If you were spiritual, you were going to go further with spirituality. And I think we've seen the extremes of our culture, right, emerge relative to what you were just saying, where People bum rush the state capital, you know, and, you know, yet we feel this 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 levity now that we've got a new administration. So those of us that are hopeful, we're more inclined now to to be hopeful. So when you look around and, and I know I haven't been back to L.A., but I have heard about the homeless situation. And it's interesting, Nelson, because, you know, the, the when you think about New York and you see how New York shut down. And when I first heard how, you know, immediately uh, the mayor and the governor in California reacted and shut businesses down. I thought, oh, smart, good. They're going to put a clamp on it, you know, uh, contain the virus and what have you. But then L.A. has gone through several resurgences and you see lots of storefronts that are now boarded up and shut down. I was in South Beach a few weeks ago and, man, you wouldn't even know there was a pandemic. People were out. I was at Prime 112 with my son having dinner. I had a mask on. The staff had a mask on. But people were out and about. Now, I'm not condoning that at all. But when you look at the, the potential impact of one plan versus the other, what's your take on that? How, how far back do you feel this is set L.A. or New York? And what, what's your overall well, couple of things. view on One is when you have a national leadership, the reason we have such a problem is that we never had a national plan. So you have a patchwork here. So this state does this, this state. This. How do you stop a global pandemic with a patchwork? You can't. We needed to have a national response. We needed to have, I mean, we should have been having, everyone who gets on a plane should have, should have had to have been uh, checked for corona. We should have had, we never had a national plan. So that's a, the absence of leadership from Trump and his company, I think, hurt a lot. As to your point about these cities, New York is interesting uh, because I spent most of the summer in New York. And so Midtown Manhattan is a ghost town. I mean, 6th Avenue, 5th Avenue, ghost town. There's nobody there. Even Times Square in the middle of the summer, which is usually packed with tourists, it still had people, 
but it wasn't the numbers that you're used to. So I think that Midtown, I think that skyscraper business, the real estate industry, which is a big part of New York, is in a lot of trouble. That said, Brooklyn was alive. The neighborhoods, whenever I went to a neighborhood, people were out. People were on your stoop. Uh, people were eating in sidewalk cafes. People were playing DJ music in their front. There was a great sense of community, I found, in, in Bed-Stuy, in, in Fort Greene, uh, throughout Brooklyn. I've seen parts of that. So the neighborhoods are vibrant because people can stay there and they've been able to build bonds so I, and be able to work at home, which is you know key. So the shift in like what we're doing right now, we're never going to go back to 100% everyone in those buildings and you know the skyscrapers in 6th Avenue. So the question will become, what do we do with these buildings? Because they're going to be half full at best, you know, and that's the same true in downtown LA. Any of the, I mean, I know that San Francisco, all those the tech companies, everyone's, you know, not in those buildings. So there's an opportunity, I believe, if we go back to our earlier conversation about homelessness, are we going to have the guts to say to these real estate, no, these buildings are empty. Can we repurpose some of this for housing? I mean, it's, it's, it, that's going to be the big issue in New York. It's going to be a big issue in San Francisco. All of these big hubs with tall skyscraper buildings that workers are not going back to. Will we have the vision as a nation to see an opportunity and turn, turn, a, you know, turn a tragedy into something positive? I, I think really that's going to be the challenge because, man, you, when you, if you, as a New Yorker, if you went, walked down Fifth Avenue right now, you'd be like, what? There's nobody here. Wow. Sixth Avenue, there's nobody here. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the key word you used earlier is, is empathy. You know, are we empathetic enough to address that situation? And I think the idea of, of repurposing some of those what will be, you know, empty office spaces as, as residential is certainly a viable idea. Are you Do you miss restaurants, Nelson? Do you miss being able to just roll into a spot? man and, and see your your regular crew and and my favorite spot so i have a lot of little spots like all of us who go out a lot but my favorite like I, I, my ritual for years was i get up in brooklyn work out do some writing i take the j train i go to equinox work out get, get the steam the little sauna and then there's a spot called hampton chutney i don't know if you know it it's mm -hmm. a the Doza spot, it's on, it used to be on Prince, now it's on Grand. They make these doses. I have a little chai, they have chai from India, and I would skip my notebook out, and I would post up there from 1.30, 2 o'clock to maybe 4 or 5, uh, either sit outside or sit inside. I knew all the waitress, I knew all the hostess staff. They knew my, when I walked in, they have a dish called the Nelson, that, you know, <laughs> that they just, oh, it's the Nelson, okay, blah, blah, blah. And I would sit there, I have, I'd meet friends there. So even though I had a membership at Soho House and these other spots, this was one of my local, it just gave me a sense of community. I got the same thing. Those rituals that you have with any great spot. And so I definitely, definitely miss that. I miss that connectivity. I miss, you know, it's the friends thing. Oh, here's Nelson. You want to, you're getting, you're getting to Nelson? Okay. I'd order him that chai. He wants to. Like, you know, that connectivity, uh, man, it's, it, it, you don't realize how important that is to your sense of personhood because you have this connection with these people. You talk about their kids. How's it going at school or, you know, all of that stuff. And, um, it just, the app, even at Soho House, I have, there's a couple of waiters that I know, like out here, a couple of brothers who work at Soho House in the West Hollywood. Oh, Nelson, what's up, man? Yeah, you know, you take that spot over by the, the thing. I, I got you in a minute. That, you know, that connectivity, you don't realize how big a part of it is your personhood when it's gone. And you, you, you threw me back. You remember Lucky Strike? Sure. Oh, that was another one. Oh, man. I used to love taking the New York Times and the Lucky Strike and just the, the way that a Keith McNally room just made you feel about yourself yes. was unique. Right. Baltazar pastis. Yes. Oh, man. All those spots. I mean, Lucky Strike, I had I, I used to go to after Nick games. So, you know, you, you go to a Nick game, you take the A train. It's maybe three stops, the canal, four stops, the canal. You go in, and then if you're going to go out, now you're in the right spot. At Lucky Strike, you can go this way, that way, you know, hook up with people for your next, for your next, you know, three or four hours of activity. Uh, and so it was a signature spot. I had a 50th birthday party there, I remember, one time. Uh, yeah, 50th. Um, oh, I mean, I, I it, so the thing about New York, as you know, is it is a self, it, it, it does regenerate itself. But I do feel like it's regenerating self. Manhattan itself is going to be an interesting question. What's going to happen? When I talk to young people, they all want to be in Brooklyn. Everyone wants to be in Bushwick. They want to be in Bed-Stuy. They want to be in those areas. 
They're not talking about being in East Village. Said the village is over if you're young. I mean, unless you're an NYU student, I mean, no young people hang out in the village anymore, really. Is that so? True? I didn't realize that. Why is that? There's nothing there. There's nothing there for them. There's no clubs anymore, mm-hmm. right? Um, all those brownstones are filled. You really see that young energy that we you know, that that brings the creativity happening in Brooklyn. Maybe in some parts, still pockets of the Lower East Side, but um, it's it, it's. It's so much been pushed east or even over to Jersey. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Manhattan itself is undergoing a definite identity crisis. When I get on the J train, half of the kids on the people on there are young people who go to NYU or go to some of those schools downtown who can afford to get a you know an apartment in Bushwick or parts of Bed Stuy, but they can't afford a place necessarily in unless they're trust fund kids. It's hard for them to afford a place in in Manhattan because all of those things that we used to all the places that supported uh, the artists that we knew who could. Make it, you know, I do a gig every now and then, and then I do a little hustle on the side. Uh, that is just too expensive. Or you have people living three or four for the apartment. Right. And that's been happening for a while. I mean, we've seen that process unfolding. I remember yeah. playing basketball at West, West 4th Street Park, you know, every, every Saturday morning and going over to a little spot called the Bagel that was, you know, a little <laughs> slice of it. Remember the Bagel? Right, a yeah. slice of a restaurant. But uh, just all those little cool spots, man, that just one after another started to just disappear as the neighborhood. I guess I guess the term is gentrified. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think one of the things that really I mean, I'll tell you what makes me sad. And I'm sure you, the coffee shop, man. Oh, when that went out. Yeah. Because uh, I actually, I have a picture here in my house of me standing. I, I took a picture the day it closed. A picture of me standing in front of the coffee shop. Because that was another one of those. Inst- now it's a, here, check this out. It's a Chase Manhattan Bank. Oh, no. And they have the, no, check it out. But check out what they did. Next to the bank part, the entrance, over here, they have a quote unquote coffee shop. They put a little coffee stand. No, they did. Oh, oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. And what a picture of jelly bean in the window. <laughs> <laughs> really fronting. <laughs> so uh, I want to I want to shift gears here a little True. bit, uh, Nelson, because it's just so many things, man. I I wanted to try to to get to with you because you're just such an interesting uh, interesting cat, man. Uh, but I want to talk about some of your writing and uh, books in particular. And by the way, before I do, Marie Brown sends her warmest wow. regards to you. She oh, knew that I spoke with her yesterday. She knew we were going to talk today, and uh, she just wanted to make sure that I that I said hello to you. She Where's talked Marie about these days, man? double day offices and hanging out and how oh, yeah. far. Yeah, that was when I was just wanted to be a writer. I met her and I would just go like, this is when they make books. I was so excited. Oh, please tell her I said hello. Wow, man. I will do that. I will do that. So um, the book that I wanted to, to dive into is one you, you wrote a while ago, but I thought it was just really pivotal and, and also touched on the, the decades that uh, I thought were you know pretty, pretty relevant to me in my life in terms of my world of being in the restaurant business. But it's called Buffy's, B-Boys, Baps, Boho, and Boho's Notes on a Post-Soul Black culture. Just give me the, the Nelson George synopsis of your own work here. What what were you hoping to get across with this book? Well, this book, uh, the title reflects the very kinds of black people I was encountering in New York. The buppy, you know, the new, the black yuppie, the b-boy, self-explanatory, boholes. I was trying to deal with the whole Fort Green bohemian thing. And Baps was this kind of like the kind of girls I dated, basically. These kind of you know, black American princess chicks. Um, but Notes on Postal Black Culture comes from an essay I wrote for the Village Voice in the round 90 or so about how we were not in the soul culture. We were in another era where hip hop, you had the Black Rock Coalition, you had um, the black film thing, you had a different kind of black um it wasn't civil rights anymore. It was some other concoction. You know, a lot of talk was around uh, Mandela and, and Free Mandela. So most of the articles in that book come from, a, from the Village Voice and uh, from the Native Sun column and some of the other journalism I did. So the, the immediacy of that work is because they literally were things I was writing as things were happening. You know, it has everything there from a review of Bobby Brown's, you know, Don't Be Cruel album to a profile of, of a guy I grew up with, Willie Randolph, played for the Yankees, who went on later to yeah, I, I love that that chapter, man. That was that was fantastic. As a as a sports fan myself, mm-hmm. just the the image of you being able to to sit and talk to Willie in the du- in the that in their amazing. locker room and yeah. going to Yankee Stadium, and I always loved going to Shea and going to yeah. the Garden. Those what those venues just did to you when you first walk in and you see all that grass, or you you feel the oh, magic yes, of Madison Square Garden. I tell you something. I mean, I've been to 
to a lot of NBA arenas now, travel. There's nothing like game night on Madison at a, at a good, if the Knicks are decent and they're playing a good team, there's electricity in that room. It's like no other place I've ever been. So, yeah, so capturing all that. And then there's a lot of stuff about, you know, one of the big essays in there is about the shooting. Uh, the guy named Edmund Purry, he was a young black guy, was accused of shooting a New York City cop. And so it's a wide range. It, it really captures that, I don't know, late 80s to early 90s New York. You know, there's a whole essay. One of my favorite ones is um, something like about David Dinkins and Al Sharpton and how Dinkins was the mayor, but Sharpton had, at that time, was very much the... If you were really in trouble when you were black, you went to Sharpton. That's who you called. Yeah. You called. So uh, dealing with all of these different uh, dynamics of New York and also the global culture, you know. Yeah, it's one of my favorite books, man. No, no doubt about it. Yeah. And you and you go between New York and L.A. You have been right, quite, right. A, you right. know, quite right. some time. And, and in this book, you bounce between both. Um, and one of the things that I thought that was that was really interesting is when you started to um, cover... Uh, Hardcore rap, gangster rap, you know, the, the West Coast rap, we'll call it. That was, I moved to LA in, in 89 mm-hmm. and had, you know, experienced the rap scene starting to, you know, unfold in New York. And when I got to LA, um, you know, certainly, you know, was, was witness to some of that. But there was a quote that you used that uh, I thought was really interesting. And it was a, the chapter was about Tupac. And I don't know that this quote is specific to Tupac, but I thought it in it, I just wanted to read it to you and get your mm-hmm. thoughts on it. You said, um, Tupac and the violence you saw growing up and around the music world, you said, quote, a studio gangster can't out rhyme a bullet and real gangsters rarely outlive them. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was really interesting because there, there's obviously you grew up in Brooklyn. I'm from New York. We've known people that were real hustlers and some that, you know, are locked up or, or unfortunately dead. And we also have been, you know, privy to the music world. And we see some people who rap about it and talk about it. But just give me your spin on that a little bit. What's, well, what I mean, were you conveying in that quote? There's a lot of people who who talked it and didn't live it. But I think that that's the case. I mean, if you're really, if you really are in that life, you really aren't necessarily making records about it because the feds listen, as we now know, the police listen to everything. Right. And um, so I always felt like, you know, that's why, you know, that's why partly why I did CB4 was Chris Rock. Because the whole idea was was basically based on real stuff. The idea of the MC taking the life or uh, details of a real G and, you know, using that as a fodder for most of their records. You know, I mean, Ice Cube, who's one of the most articulate MCs of all time, one of the most, uh, uh, you know, who helped birth gangster rap to a great degree. You know, he's a, he went to college in Arizona. He's been happily married for like 30 years. Uh, so, you know, I'm not saying he's a studio gangster necessarily, but I'm saying that he, if you didn't know better, you think that Ice Cube was out there shooting people every day. Right. And he clearly was not. He was writing rhymes and he was taking care of his family. So right. black artists also are not allowed to often sometimes be artists. Sometimes if a black person does it, well, they must have done it. They must have lived it. Whereas no one asked if Martin Scorsese was in a mob, the mob. We know Martin Scorsese was in the mob, but he was an observer of mob-like behavior. And that's what most rappers are. So, but they're not, you know, you know the way we work the, here. They're gangster like, adjacent. Exactly. All of them are gangster adjacent. Right. That's not the same thing as being a gangster. No, not at all. I mean, you and you also spend time on someone who we've we've touched on in conversation before, Bill Underwood. Yeah. And you mentioned how Bill, for those that don't know, uh, actually just got out of uh, federal penitentiary after 34 years. He yeah, was well, accused of uh, a lot of different things, but was sentenced to life without the possi- possibility of of parole and was just was just released a couple of weeks ago compassionately he's in good health and living in new york but in in one of the chapters nelson you talk about bill at a music conference oh, yeah. and him talking about the need to independently i remember he used to use the description to me we need to press and distribute but you right. you talk about him in in ways that uh, kind of highlight his intellectual capabilities as even having come from the street but give right. me a, give me your take on what uh, on what Bill kind of, what he represented to you? Well, I remember, uh, man, I never forget the speech that I talk about. It was a Jack the Rapper, which was this amazing black music conference. It went on for like 20 years or so. I think it was 18 years. And I know he came out in a white suit. He had those Kumo D glasses, the blue ones. And he was getting an award, I think, as promotion man. He said a speech like, you know, black music turns into Krugerrands, turns into Deutschmarks, turns into Lyra. And, you know, it was like it was almost like the Michael Douglas Greed is Good speech, 
it had that kind of, the room got really quiet because he was talking about black music in, as a global economic entity. That vision is, is rare. And in the business part of it, um, you know, we're in a reckoning right now in the record business. People are trying to really deal with the legacy of a of systematic abuse of black artists. And his speech was about that. And his speech was about the global reach of our culture. And we've never, oh, I shouldn't say never, but only sporadically have been able to really monetize that in the way we should. I mean, it's interesting, man, because, you know, the issue back then was always distribution. How do we, who controls that? Now this generation has the ability to go outside of that and to create their own structures. Um, it's interesting to see, the problem is, I think, that I don't know if this generation has the same vision of black identity or nationalist identity, because we were all coming out of, we still had all heard Stokely and we'd all heard Malcolm. It was still very alive in our minds, even in the late, you know, the early 80s. Now we're another, you know, 20, 30 years later, they have the tools, but I don't know if they have the vision of black empowerment. Right. The tools right. are here. You know, I want to, I want to, now that you bring up that topic, I want to bring up something that uh, Marie Brown, um, who is a person we referred to earlier, she's an iconic uh, black publisher, um, probably has been in the publishing business uh, longer than any Afri African-American I know, and uh, an yeah. old friend of my family's and obviously someone who meant a lot to you. But uh, you quoted her in your book, um, talking about how uh, at that, she said, during the 60s, the first multi multicultural renaissance black books were in. When I returned to Doubleday in the 70s, I was instructed to diversify my list. So basically, she's saying that we had a cultural moment of, yes. you know, that resonated with folks in during that period. Interestingly enough, in talking with her yesterday, we talked about her recent quote in the New York Times, basically saying that we're we're in one of those moments again. Absolutely. Do we you are. do you see the same thing, Nelson? It's in publishing. It's in film. It's in all of the different traditional media, and obviously now with streaming and so forth. I was part of. I was a kid during this that seventies wave, and then during the nineties wave, I was right up in there. So I talk a lot with, you know, with Reggie Hudlin, with Chris Rock, with other folks who I've known now 20, 30 years about where we are now and the sustainability of this particular moment. Uh, and the question is always going to be, do we build institutions within these moments that allow us not to be when we're no longer a trend to sustain? We didn't do a good job of that in the 90s. I don't know that any, any spike, I would say spike of everyone. You know, Bill Fortick is in the mule through his into an enduring. He does advertising. There's an advertising agency. Mike is very entrepreneurial. But most of the other folks did not build businesses that sustained um, and that can sustain the droughts. I think that's really the key thing is it's not about everyone gets hot and cold, as you know, in this business. It's about do you have a, a structure that sustains you when you're not hot anymore? Um, and the key will be out of this era. Uh, will there be a number of black businesses, media businesses that are able once, maybe in two years, and you know, we're on to the next thing. We may not, black may not be in anymore. Maybe we're, you know, everything is going to be about Asian people. Who knows what else is going to happen? Mm -hmm. Will we have enough structures that can continue creating content to fulfill our needs, both intellectually and emotionally? That's always a challenge, I think, here. That's always a challenge. And so, Will out of this era, will the Issa Rays and um, the other folks, I mean, Oprah is one example of someone who's built an ongoing business model that's continued going forward. With it, but we, we have, we need five or we need 10 of those people. We don't just need one. You know, I, I relate that to the, the restaurant industry. You know, when my dad started the cellar in 74, I remember the mainstream media just did not pay attention to black owned restaurants and there were no such thing as restaurant publicists back in the seventies. In fact, your old publication, the Amsterdam news, Audrey Bernard, uh, a columnist with Amsterdam news. That was one of the two places that we would get ink. It was the Amsterdam news and jet magazine and, uh, and the go out with the in crowd, um, right. their, their, that column. But, you know, mm -hmm. one of the things that I that I'm sensitive about right now is is with the conversations evolving around racial and social justice from from 2020, the, the food industry, the, the black culinary, mm -hmm. the African-American culinary journey is getting a new level of interest and and an exploration into the roots of from Africa to here and, and what made it over, what foods made it over, what 
what diets were, you know, consumed by slaves, where that food came from, farming, and and how that's evolved into the scene that we have today with emerging black chefs who, you know, are proliferating at a rate that, you know, prior to now has not happened. And the media is seemingly catching up. James Beard had an issue over the lack of diversity. Bon Appetit hired a black food editor. Um, but I have felt as a restaurateur, I'm not a chef, as a as an African American restaurateur, the absence of black journalists to cover my story. Because our story, Nelson, is always a little different. You know? Well, I mean, I, I think that that's you know, it's funny because I, I thought that um, at some point I would not be doing stuff that I do. I thought there'd be a whole nother wave of people who did do what I did. And there's, there hasn't really been as many as I thought. Part of it is that I got access from the Amsterdam News, then through Billboard and then the Village Voice. I was able to, quote unquote, cross over in a sense to uh, wider audiences. One of the things that's happened is that um, we've lost the Jets. We've lost the Ebony's. You know, Amsterdam News is not the force it was, the black meat. So where are these venues that are, are the, are the, is the griot and all those, are they filling that role or not? I'm not sure. Uh, but I don't feel like there's enough access for young writers to expand and, uh, and to cover the range of things that need to be covered. I mean, one of the issues is that we have, when I was in Amsterdam News, they used to say, oh, it's, it's, we always say, oh, it's another black story. We used to say that because there were just so many things that needed to be covered and so many outlets looking for, for exposure. It was almost overwhelming to, 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 because again, in that era, there were few outlets. There's more media. There's me and blogs. There's me and little, but how many of them have the critical mass to really make a difference that, that drives people to a restaurant? I just don't know. And I think that that, I think in a sense, it's weird, man, because when you, when you guys started, uh, the seller, your father, because all black people read the Amsterdam news at some point, it, it drove people to the restaurant. I'd be hard pressed, and this might be just because I'm old, to find what is the what is the outlet if you want a forty if you want to reach a forty year old black couple who want to go out to dinner, you know, for Valentine's Day. What is the outlet that you know will hit those eyeballs? You know, those are the you know. Yeah, and, and I, you, I mean, you, you're touching on it. I don't know if you saw the article in the New York Times from this past Sunday, but. Um, how much there is to compete for our attention these yeah. days, how many places we go to for information. Um, you know, I usually read the New York Times every Sunday. I couldn't read it this Sunday because I wanted to finish your book. There's always a trade. What we, yeah. you know, we put down something to pick up something else, our yeah. phone. So to your point, there's so many places now talking to us and talking at us. And then we're, you know, we're on social media. We're posting our own stuff. We're doing podcasts. There's just so much competition for, for our attention. And then, you know, I want to get your take on and, and then dive back into Brooklyn a little bit during that very rich cultural time that you talked about, because we're seeing the core of our communities just start to disintegrate. Harlem, South L.A., Brooklyn gentrifying. So when our culture starts to starts to dissipate and out into the suburbs and further away to other boroughs and outside of Los Angeles and where where is the center? Where's the center of black culture these days? I, w I always say, you know, it was a joke we made in good here when I worked with Chris Rock, but Atlanta. <laughs> yeah. Atlanta is kind of that. Well, you know, one of the things that, that, that's the unspoken part of gentrification, at least I can speak to the Brooklyn part. Mm -hmm. Is that when you look at what happened in, in Georgia in the last election, I would love to see a statistic on how much of that is expatriate northerners in the south. When you look at what's going on in Virginia, like my mother moved back there and, mm -hmm. and from which a lot of that uh, energy, those homeowners, those, you know, the, the teachers and the bus drivers and the people who used to go to the cellar. A lot of them are living in North Carolina, Virginia. So I, when you look at the demographics and the electoral, I think you are seeing the impact of those people. So that's, I think that's the good part of it, that it's, it's, it's brought back a lot of really much, some, somewhat money retired or retiring black people down south. Kind of a re reverse migration yes, you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. I think the New York thing is, our, it just goes back to this other thing about ownership. These houses that were owned, like that you bought in 1975 for 17,000 or you bought for 125,000 in 85. These houses are valued at some of them now two, three million dollars, depending on where you are and how much people want to buy them from you. So the question is, do you sell and cash in or do you hold on? And I think that's the, been the big issue. I think people have cashed in. So there's that part. And then there's just the straight up people getting jacked out of their apartments. And if you're, I put it this way, Brett, if you're a renter in these areas, you're in trouble. If you're an owner, I think you have some power. 
But if you're renting in Crown Heights, if you're renting in East Harlem and you don't have a good lease, they're going to push you out of there. And I don't know quite how to address that. I don't know what I don't know enough of an economist to know how to turn that around. But it's a that's what's happening all over is that the rental market in these areas like Bed-Stuy, you know, the homeowner blocks in Bed-Stuy, you know, along Syverson, along, uh, you know, Malcolm X, people still have those. But people are selling those off to, you know, real estate companies. They're taking that. If I can get a million dollars and these guys flip it for two million. I'm taking that money. So I don't know what the fundamental way we do. But I do feel the absence. I mean, you go to Harlem, man. Wow. It's a different world. And I, I just don't know how you how do you stop the tide of economic transition that's happening? It, it, again, this goes back. I think it all goes back to consciousness. Is this something that you feel committed to? Is there? Can you turn your cultural concern into an economic concern? Can you make people want to hold on to this property in the face of the, the offers they're getting? I don't know. I, I don't have the answer. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's an interesting thing to, to contemplate, but I hear you. I mean, economics are going to rule, you know, but I do worry about, you know, as, as black restaurants are starting to um, pop up around the country and black mm. chefs are, you know, getting a, a, a different look these days. And nice. um, as those communities, I mean, we opened Post and Beam in South L.A., um, and I wasn't sure if we were part of the reason why the community, you know, I, I knew the community, community, you know, they, they certainly supported us and were happy that we were there, but I was charging $24 for fried chicken. So was <laughs> I, all, and you know, real estate brokers that were showing right. folks, those neighborhoods, those beautiful homes in Baldwin Hills, Dare Heights View Park, right. a lot of them were not African-American, but they would bring them to post and beam yes. to say, look at, you know, some of the amenities the neighborhood could have. So was I, you know, part of the, the problem, you know, with that, but I, I don't know the answer either, man. And I, you know, it, it's going to continue to unfold, I guess, and we'll, we'll have to watch it. I'm, hey, Brad, I'm hoping that like you can, you know, can commentate a little bit more on, on the restaurant world because you have such an important voice and, and you can bring a, a level of um, perspective to this that I, that I feel is missing. I, I mean, I'll tell you a story. When I started writing about hip hop, I had a moment in there where like, yo, if I keep writing about this stuff, yo, other people are going to come in the community. You know, so there was a moment where I thought about if I keep, if we keep promoting this culture as the new hip thing, it's only five minutes away from the money coming in and it being jacked. It didn't totally get jacked at that time. It was a longer period. But, you know, that's, I think that's always the trade-off with our culture mm-hmm. is that we create dynamic, whether it's food, music, dance, art, literature. At what point does it become pop culture? And how do we ne- negotiate that versus how does it keep it? And the truth is, as Americans, our instinct is always to go pop. Because we always want the most people to know our shit. Mm-hmm. But that brings certain challenges economically because we don't have a very strong economic base. So we're always in danger. It's always vulnerable to, to a jack move. So I guess the question I would have about the black restaurant space, are these black restaurants, are they being supported by chefs by black money? Or who's, who's, who owns the damn thing? It's like when I look at Clubhouse, everyone wants to be on Clubhouse. Well, they just got evaluated a billion dollars. But who owns Clubhouse? The brothers getting some of that billion dollars? Because it's black. <laughs> it's brothers who are making Clubhouse hot. So I'm like, I don't want to be on Clubhouse. I don't need to be on Clubhouse. I got enough to do. But you know what I'm saying? These are yeah, all, think, enough places to check. <laughs> yeah, I don't, yeah, come on. I don't need to do another yeah. thing. But so, so I, I do think that um, the question I would have, and, and it's worth exploring, is mm-hmm. will the black culinary explosion benefit both the actual chefs and then what does it mean for the community are we training more black chefs are we training black people how to run restaurants i mean because i mean i think that's to your point i think that's how these things get perpetuated you have to pass if the information is not being passed on it's just a top-down situation where money is going out and coming in but we're not perpetuating the culture I would agree. And I and I also feel that the you know, the importance of capturing our story and documenting our story is of value, too. Um, you know, when I went to try to get my dad's obituary printed in The New York Times, there wasn't enough, you know, printed material for them to Google. So they, I couldn't justify or, or verify who he was. And then I, wow. of course, and I called Susan Taylor and, you know, got her. But we, we were never never able to get it done as opposed to Elaine from Elaine's got a full page. And, you know, I, I compared my dad's life to Elaine's life. And, 
you know, it just kind of points to the the challenge that we have as black entrepreneurs in the, the struggle to, um, you know, for for right. recognition, even, you know, in some cases. So what is there? What is the what is the best book on the history of black black restaurants? Is there a book? Well, there's a historian, a guy named Adrian Miller, who's mm-hmm. uh, getting more and more prominent, um, who I who I tend to tap into for various quotes. But I, Tony Tipton Martin is starting to do, you know, she's she's writing quite a bit. But I, I just think that there's just so much more room. You know, when we lost mm-hmm. Alberta Wright of Jezebel, oh, yes, there was a nice article on her in the yeah, New York right. Times. They, they did yeah. do her her obituary. But I don't have Alberta on film. There's no, you know, I talked to Valerie Simpson a couple of weeks ago. She did the podcast. When we were at 2020, we had Nina Simone, the Ohio players. Um, no film, no no footage. And that some of that's on us. I, I get it. You know, we just, we weren't walking around with phones back then. So we weren't as conscious of, we were in the moment. We enjoyed where we were and what we were doing. But, you know, I just, I, I feel the absence of not having captured some of these stories and, once they're gone, they're gone. Man, Jezebel's. Wow, man. You, I, I, I have to bring it back. You asked me that question earlier. Jezebel's was the spot for me in my 20s and the 30s. You know, it was on Ninth Avenue, I think 45th. 45th and 9th, yeah. It was three blocks from Billboard. So I would go there every night, you know, almost after work, just to look at the pretty people, to hang out at the bar. That was, oh man, you, oh, and she was, what a woman she was. That was a spot. Alberta was incredible, me. man. She was, that was an amazing was spot. Truly incredible. Yeah. Sea crab soup, man. Oh, you know it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And that goat cheese salad, man. Crazy. Oh, yeah. Uh, banana pudding, all of that. So we're, we're running out of time here, Nelson. And I, I, um, you know, I, I had four pages of things I really wanted to try to cover with you, but of course I knew I wouldn't be able to get to all of them. So I'm just going to have to kind of jump ahead here and, so I just want to get, you know, from you musically, what, what are you listening to these days? What, what's uh, inspiring you? You know, of the younger people, I listen to, I love Anderson Park. I love her. So I've been trying to, uh, there's a kid named Daniel Caesar, who's done a bunch of great duets. Who does, so I listen to a lot of that, uh, the newer wave of R&B. And I'm also, uh, there's a Marvin Gaye album that just came out. It's an instrumental album. It's called Funky Nation. He recorded apparently right after what's going on. It's got Hamilton Bohannon on drums, Ray mm. Parker Jr. on guitar, Michael Henderson on bass, Wawa Watson on second guitar, and, and, uh, Marvin's playing keys. And, uh, that just came out. Great instrumental tracks. So that's been my, like, throwback, my fun throwback thing. Um, but I urge all the, you know, I think one thing that happens with R&B is that a lot of the older heads are like, there's nothing going on anymore. But there's Jasmine Sullivan, Pac, Dave Caesar, uh, her, there's a lot of great young artists and we need to be supporting them and keeping that tradition alive. I hear you, man. And I'm also happy to see Gil Scott Heron, you know, just constantly reemerge. Yes. It was a, yeah. a remix, uh, uh, where one of his old tracks had talked about, uh, um, stealing the, the, the country, uh, the, the man who tried to steal America is not right. behind bars, you know, right, right, right. but, uh, Gil making, making himself felt again. Uh, Nelson, man, I, you know, I'm so appreciative of you doing this and I just, you know, I want to say to you, man, how much respect I have for you. And I just want to keep hearing your voice. We need people like you out there guiding us, you know, through times and articulating our experiences the way that you do. Uh, I just, uh, deep, Deep admiration for you and the stuff that you do, man. Keep keep doing it. Hey, man, Brad, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. I mean, uh, you've been a big part of my life from 2020 to uh, <laughs> the, to uh, and just you know we didn't even talk about Roxbury's and and the no Michigan. or Georgia. We didn't. Get oh to yeah. That. Oh Georgia. Next time. Oh man, Georgia. I was that was a, I was at a night that OJ got acquitted. Wow. Remember that night? Yeah, we had a victory party for the defense That's team right. that night. That's yeah. Right. And I saw Johnny we got bomb threats. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I got out of there. I was like, no, I, I, I left early, brother. <laughs> oh man, but we're still here, Nelson. Exactly. So uh, thank you so much, brother. And I okay. uh, I look forward to talking to you, seeing you soon, man. Stay healthy. Okay. Stay safe. Have you too. Peace. Thank you, man. Hey, Ambassador. 
How you doing? Hello there, Mr. Johnson. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you. So what what's going on in your world today? What are you going to tell us about? Oh, there's so much. Where should I start? You know, I said, let me start with halal. I think many people are learning different kinds of food preparations now. There's vegan preparation, there's gluten-free, and then there are these this halal, which is just the kind of lawful preparation of food for people who are generally of the Islamic faith, but it's just really blessing the food. And they also have a big craze now in the hospitality industry and travel are halal tours all over the globe, really on the high side, usually very exotic and experiential. And it's so that they can make sure that wherever they travel, they can trustfully eat the food and have various experiences. So about three years ago, this brother named uh, Captain Talib, who lives out of Canada, was designing these um, high-end yacht excursion sails from St. Vincent in the Grenadine. And of course, COVID put a little bit of a crimp in that. But we were talking recently because so many people are now eager. And he's now setting up something, these long sails, one to two weeks, exploring the islands of St. Vincent and the Grenadines, of which there are really 32 captivating islands located right there in the Caribbean Sea. You have your main stretch. If you look on the map, it looks like one main body. But if you get closer, there are these little dots and each one has its own personality. Some are inhibited, some are not. Those that are not actually have like really exotic um, hikes. You can do horseback riding. The reefs are amazing. Volcano uh, visiting, um, making sure that nothing is hot or anything like that. I want to go back for a minute, though, just to the halal portion. Now, I've always yes. associated halal with kosher. Is well, it's what the same way. Kosher, kosher is a preparation, right? It's not that the animal is different, but it's fed differently. You know, it's prepared differently. The intention is different, mm-hmm. right? So halal, galat, kosher, pretty much the same way. It's one of the things I can always count on that where I go, that there's no pork in the space. But now we have a lot of people. You don't have to be of the faiths associated. It, people are really mindful about how they digest prepared foods. And so okay. they will have in some of their locations, the hotels as well, well as the sailing components. This is the brother um, has something called Safina Vacations. S-A-F-I-N-A-H, Safina Vacations, and then there's Safina Sailing, which is that specific trip connecting all of those Grenadine Island uh, locations, which I can't wait to do. You know, I know you love the water. I do. Um, So when he mentioned it to me before about creating a designated hosted experience, I was always kind of one foot in, one foot out. But I'm really excited about it. So would the, would the idea be to spend a, a day or so in port at a at a particular island? That's exactly right. Over the week or two, mm-hmm. you can choose any of those locations. And he said that depending on who's on the tour, that you might say, I don't want to get back on the ship. They start with breakfast. They sail all night. They land in the morning. And if it's something that the crowd or the group enjoys, then they're docking right there. And there's six cabins on each. So it's two people per cabin, depending on how you rest, how you, mm-hmm. uh, how you live. Um, how you move. And if, how you move. Um, but if there's a larger group, they kind of sail side by side, which is also kind of cool. So you can have a group of 20 people and just that many sails. And then they dock together, which is really quite cool. So there's a chef on board. It's inclusive with the chef and it has a doctor on board as well as the... Um, the captains. Really cool. Traveling with you is an extra special treat because one of your real skill sets is the ability to to, to find interesting things to do, interesting people that are doing them. Um, can you elaborate on on what you how you foresee that interweaving with this this type of excursion and island hopping? Well, yes, because one of the things we never take into consideration when we see a dot on a map is indeed how the people live. And so it's key not just to have a kind of land and do, but land and engage. Who's there? You know, what is the music? We do those things where we plan ahead of time and you understand the characteristics of of the people in the lands that we visit, whether it's in the Caribbean or the African continent or here in the United States. You know, I'm here in Louisville. I'm a New Yorker in Appalachia. And it's, I couldn't like just stamp myself around. I had to listen and hear and feel and see how people, how people move. You know, you remind me of, of our very first podcast with Norm Nixon and how Norm talked about 
reading up on a place before you before you go there and visit. And I think that the days, I mean, everybody loves a great beach. I love a great beach. But to, to travel to these beautiful places and not really get into the culture and understand the history and the people and who's lived there. And I think it's just a, you're, you're missing an opportunity. Yes, go to the beach, but also know a little something about, about the place that you're visiting. Exactly right. And narrative's a key. That's why we pause. On the way to the site, we have a stop somewhere where we're going to learn a little bit about the person in the village. Or We're not just going to shop at the gift store. We're going to go to where they actually make it so that we can see the process and feel the hand that touches it. That's wow. essential. Well, sign me up. I am, I'm so <laughs> with this. Um, well, I the name again. You in that water. <laughs> the name again of the gentleman whose tour it is. And, uh... He's Captain, Captain Talib. Talib Khan and it's okay. and it's Safina Sailing or Safina Vacations and you can go online and see them but we're going to actually set up some specific ones in context to how we move and the corner table. Well that is going to be a trip of a lifetime and yeah. I'm really looking forward to that. So thank you so much for sharing that with with us and the listeners today. Uh much appreciated. You My take pleasure. care and we will be talking to you real soon no doubt. Like real soon. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson, produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson, coordinating producer Lauren Turner, theme music Life Goes On by Bryce Vine, executive producers Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a Say It Loud Network production.